Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, which this series is all about books for turbulent times. Our top commentators have chosen the books that they think will bring solace and advice. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT's Work and Careers Editor, and I'm joined by Tim Harford, Senior Columnist and Writer of the Undercover Economist column. And returning to the podcast to bring her own brand of life and gravitas to proceedings is Isabel Berwick, Assistant Comment Editor. Welcome both. Well, thank you. <laughs> this week's book, Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived Joyful Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. But before we get to that book, Tim, what are you reading this week? I have the bad habit of reading books in parallel. I am reading a <laughs> nerdy book about presentation skills for academics and I am also uh, reading books about the master forger Han von Meegren. Uh, there are three or four or five books about him. Jonathan Lopez wrote one and uh, yes he's a fascinating chap. What, what are the presentation skills for academics? They're a bunch of really obvious pieces of advice that people tend not to take. So for example uh, don't use too many words on your slides. Why don't you strip away the bullet points that Microsoft PowerPoint <laughs> puts on the slides because they're not actually helpful. Um, how to design a clearer graph. I mean, it's it's good stuff. And, and to some extent, it explains why you, you're shown two slides, one of which is incomprehensible and one of which looks rather nice. And the author then goes through and explains what has actually been changed and why it looks nice. So it's it's good. It sounds like a much-needed book because academics are not known for their presentation skills. Well, it's not just academics. <laughs> trouble, most of us are not known for our presentation skills. What I find interesting is, from the point of view of an audience member, you know whether you're listening to a good speech or not. And yet somehow we find it hard to process this information and reflect it in the, you know, the next time we give a speech ourselves. And we, don't, we, we find it hard to say, OK, that worked well, I'll do that. That didn't work, I won't do that. But I guess that's probably true of many skills. It's easy to admire skill and less easy to understand what's really behind it. Isabel, what are you reading at the well, moment? Uh, well, also sort of tangentially academic. It's a novel called The Devil and Webster by an American author called Jean Hampf Korolitsu sort of specialises in campus novels. I hesitate to call her an American David Lodge, but this is one that's a, a sort of a response to the recent uh, campus, you know, the ruckuses on American campuses around sort of snowflake students, safe spaces, all that sort of stuff. And uh, it's a kind of very quick novelistic response to an ongoing issue, but I, I think she's done it really well in terms of trying to filter through the eyes of a college president at a, a small, very liberal arts college who simply cannot cope with what's happening on her campus. And she's a veteran of 1960s student activism, and this is just so way beyond her comprehension. It completely gets out of control. It's a, it's a very good read. Campus novels are making a sort of voguish 
comeback at the moment. Stoner was probably the, the yes, uh, yes, marked uh, the return. I suppose they're, they're set in very closed worlds. It's a very satisfying fictional device, I think. But I think this is uh, this is that plus very topical. So I found it really good. From closed worlds <laughs> to open worlds. Also, another side of academia, written by two academics, onto this week's book, chosen by Tim, designing your life. How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. Tim, you described this book recently in the FT as a gem amid self-help dross. Gosh, <laughs> Can I, you tell us more? I really did like it, didn't I? <laughs> so, it, I mean, it's very California, this book, so it won't be for everybody. It is a, a career hunter's manual. Uh, in some ways, it is an Uh, a 21st century version of the classic What Colour Is Your Parachute, which is this perennial book, tells people how to choose a job that you love, how to write a CV, how to apply for a job, and which which helped me a great deal 20, 25 years ago. It is a wonderful book, What Colour Is Your Parachute. So Designing Your Life has a similar mission to help people balance their career, their family obligations, their hobbies, but in particular to use design skills. The two authors, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, uh, teach design at Stanford. And so what do we mean by design skills? Things such as thinking creatively about the problem that you're trying to solve, so you don't spend a lot of energy and time trying to solve the wrong problem, or so that you don't spend a lot of energy and time trying to solve a problem that cannot be solved. Um, Prototyping, experimenting, thinking collaboratively, uh, exploring options in parallel, all of these things they classify as design skills. And I think they do a very good job in showing how those skills can basically improve the way that we spend our time, improve the satisfaction that we have with our with our jobs and with other aspects of our lives as well. It's not just a concept they've come up with, is it? This is actually a class that they teach at Stanford. They do. I can't remember how long they've taught the, the class for, but um, they say, and I believe them, that this class that they teach is tremendously popular with students and I mean those of us who who went to university thinking back it can be a very confusing time you have a series of hurdles that you've you've been jumping over all these different exams you haven't had to make any particularly difficult choices except well what degree will I study and then suddenly real adult life begins to approach and it seems like anything's possible or maybe nothing's possible and it, it's a bewildering situation And so this book is designed for people in that situation, but I think they also do an excellent job of showing how if you're 30, you're 40, you're 60, you've just entered retirement and you're wondering what to do with your life then, these design skills can help people think about their careers and about their lives at almost any point. And it's a very practical book. It's full of exercises, Mm. yes. Yeah, and it's exercises and examples. I mean, the writing is, is very, very clear, but the examples and anecdotes that they use to illustrate particular junctures or dilemmas are very well chosen and, yeah. and they even bring themselves into those examples yes, they, they, is... they write about themselves a lot I mean look it's not D.H. Lawrence this is not <laughs> this is not high literature um, but they do write clearly and uh, apparently honestly and they have well chosen examples of their, their students hypothetical cases and themselves so you know about realising for instance that, that um, 
you know, one of the authors actually feels and maybe he's got a health problem he's got to resolve, um, or examples of, of failures that they've had and how they resolve those failures. And, and I think the examples are good. The exercises, I think, are, are even better. So we should talk about them. But I'm curious to, as to, I inflicted this book on Isabel. <laughs> I'm curious as to what she thinks of it. So I came to it cold. I had no idea. I wasn't planning on changing my life. But once I'd got halfway through, I realised that this is something I really need to think about. And what I really liked about this book is that it's not assuming you have to have a passion, which has been very the modish thing, I think, in a lot of self-help books and change-your-life books. You know, quit your job and go and be an artisanal cheesemaker or coffee maker or whatever. I don't have a passion, and apparently neither do 80% of the population. And this book says, if it says anything, it's, it's okay to have, in fact, it's preferable to have several different plans. Yeah. And I think that's really refreshing. I hadn't come across that before because I felt slightly lacking in the fact that I haven't got a passion. Why, you know, why am I working at the FT? What should I be doing instead? I quite like working at the FT. Yeah, that, that, that actually, so there's, there's a chapter around that and there's an exercise around that that I found very interesting yes. to think about. So the exercise there, they call it Odyssey Plans. You know, don't need to call it an Odyssey Plan, but... <laughs> The basic idea is to okay to think about um, what does the next five years look like, uh, assuming you stick to your plan A, you know, probably your current career, or if you're a student, you know the, the career that you're thinking of uh, pursuing, and you you start to sketch out the plan. Where are you going to be living? Who will you be living with? What will your hobbies be? What are the key goals you want to achieve? You think through all of this, and then they say, "This is the brilliant bit." Then they say, "Okay, just imagine that that doesn't work." So imagine we, we're all employees of the Financial Times. Let's say the, the FT closes down. Sorry, newspapers are dead. The FT closes down. We all get a couple of months' salary, and we've got to do something else. And there are no newspapers. So. Horrible silence. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting. Okay, so now do it again. But this time it can't be the plan A. It's got to be something else. So you start thinking, well, what, what would I do? So you do all of that. And then they say, okay, fine, that's great. That's, that's a, a second plan. Now do it again. This time, money's no object, status is no object, you can pursue the craziest dream and you won't have to worry about supporting yourself and nobody will laugh at you. What do you really want to do? And you explore all, all of those things and you, the, what does the next five mm. years, uh, you know, if you decide that you're going to become an artisan pickle maker or whatever it is. And the idea is that exploring those three different options uh, loosens up your thinking, gets you to realise there might be things you could change about what you're currently doing even if you don't quit your job, um, you might modify your job, you might modify your hobbies, you might, there are various things you can do. Uh, and it also enables you to recognise that you now we can all change. There are all various different possible paths through life we could take. And it's worth thinking about them. And I found that, um, well, Isabel, you said it was, it was new to you, it was new to me. I did do that exercise and I found that really, you know, although... Can, can you tell us Yes, about, OK, I'll be, I'll be open. <laughs> um, Please do. So life one is, is based on what I do now. So, you know, thinking about what... Ed, edit what, my columns. What, tell, me, tell me when I've made spelling mistakes. <laughs> that would only take up 10 minutes of my week, Tim, because your columns are perfect. Too kind. So that's based on, you know, what might I want to do at the FTs? That was useful to think about. Life two, what if the FT disappears... I'd written down adult literacy, something around teaching or women's empowerment and education. These are obviously all things I'm interested in, but they're in the background. And life three, what if money is no object? Rather distressingly, I've written down more charity work and a lot more yoga. So I sound like one of the characters on Big Little Lies, <laughs> which is a bit worrying. <laughs> 
<laughs> but did you find, but, I mean, it, I'm not going to ask you whether you're planning to hand in your notice, but did you find that that helped you think about the current situation you were in and maybe you need to, to alter the balance a bit? Yes, and I've been, you know, my in five years' time, both my children will have left home, for example, and so it forced me well, to they're, think they're about... They're in their 30s, are they? <laughs> <laughs> So that's forced me to think about a life when there aren't any children at home and I'm not rushing home to cook the dinner. I just found that fascinating. And, I, and the multiple prototypes thing is, is abs- I think, as you say, Tim, probably unique. Is there a danger that in doing these multiple prototypes that it has the, the opposite effect that it's supposed to have? I, sp- I suppose if any... more productive. I suppose... Well, I mean, it's not supposed to make you more productive. I think it's supposed to help you navigate through life a bit better. But I suppose there is a risk. I remember reading What Colour Is Your Parachute, which is in some ways a similar book, tw- nearly 25 mm. years ago. When I was, I don't want to be overdramatic about this, but I was somewhat depressed. And I remember filling in these, these exercises where uh, you would say, well, you know, think of a thing that you've done that you're really proud of. As a, as a way of, okay, yeah, that, that's, that, you find your passion. And I remember thinking, I've never done anything I've ever been proud of. And so there is always a risk that with this sort of book, because it's getting you to reflect on your life, if you are not in a happy place, it may, it may trigger reflections on that. But generally, I think the, the bigger danger is just not considering your options, not thinking flexibly about the constraints that you face, what's, what makes you happy and what makes you unhappy. So I, I don't think there's too much risk in engaging with a book like this. When did you first read it? Did you revisit it for, for the podcast? So I read Designing Your Life about three or four weeks ago. I mean, really quite recently, I was, I was browsing my local bookshop and you know, I just pull books off the shelf that interest me. I had no particular plans to design my life. I feel very fortunate. I love my job. So that's all fine. But still, it just seemed interesting. And I thought, well, let's read it. And I, and I thought it was very good. I haven't read What Colour Is Your Parachute for a very long time. But um, you know, it's, it's still a good book, I think. Will you revisit What Colour Is Your Parachute after reading this? I, I don't think so, simply because uh, I think I've passed that stage in my life. And the second half of Designing Your Life, which I found a bit less useful, echoed What Colour Is Your Parachute. So I was reading it and going, OK, this is all good stuff, but I, I know this stuff. Mm-hmm. But other people might not. Uh, but the first half of Designing Your Life, I, I found very useful. For example, one of the, the exercises they get you to do is to keep a, what they call a good time journal. Now, a good time journal, you think, well, gosh, what's that? So you just reflect, at the end of each day, you reflect on what you did during the day, and you say, well... Did I, did I enter a flow state? Was I really engaged and, and just lost all track of time in what I was doing? And also, did it energise me? And they just say, these are just two questions you might ask yourself. You can ask yourself different questions. And then you start to make notes and you start to see patterns. So I go to meetings and normally the meetings are boring and I hate them. But there was this one meeting on Tuesday that was great. And then well, what was great about the meeting? Was it that everyone thought I had a clever idea? Or was it that we were all a team together and we solved a problem? Wh- whatever it is. It got me to think about, as I say, I'm, I feel very lucky. I feel very happy with my career. But it got me to think about certain things that I do that are not that much fun. And certain things that I do that are more fun than I realised. For instance, I... I give a lot of talks as part of my job as a journalist. When we finish this podcast, I'm going off to the Treasury to give a talk at the Treasury about economic literacy. I hadn't really reflected until doing that exercise on how much I love giving talks. I really love it. That is the time where I just lose myself completely in what I'm doing. 
And so it encouraged me to say, well, maybe you should be giving more talks, or maybe at least you should be appreciating the fact that this isn't a chore, this is a privilege. Isabel, where did you find your flow? I really like the way they talk about flow because that's something that perhaps goes unacknowledged. But, you know, flow and and feeling energised by your work are the things that people like about work. It's much more important than money. And I do feel flow when I'm editing a really great piece or when I'm writing. You know, as a journalist, that's when you can be really absorbed in what you're doing. And and in terms of feeling engaged and energised, you know, as Tim says, sometimes a really good meeting, ideas throw around, you know, you feel a buzz and... I think I am going to keep a journal for the next few weeks and write that down because I think it sounds it's really interesting. And one of the things that we talk were, about, we, sorry, were, you, were you aware of the idea of flow before yes, you read the book? Yes, I was. But it's not something that I've consciously thought about for a long time. It feels hard to put it into practice, it does. don't you? And then this exercise, I think, was helpful. It was helpful. And they also talk about radical collaboration, which um, sounds quite California. And actually, as Tim says, towards the end of the book, it, it sort of went off into these things where you get a team together who are going to review your life plans. And I yeah, thought, buy a copy of the book for each of yeah, them. Yeah, I thought, oh, nice one. Really? Guys. You know, who may not be friends. Who may, and I just thought, mm, I think that's all, not that British. I think within a, a, a structured class situation, or if you get together with people who have similar ideas, that's perhaps possible. But I think it's a lot to ask of friends. It's almost, you know, what you're paying a therapist for. So... But the radical collaboration with colleagues, I thought, was a really interesting thought. And just, you know, tr- treating people in a different way, treating, looking at networking as collaboration rather than trying to get something from people. You know, just twisting, reframing it, yeah. I guess. There's a lot of this reframing, yes. isn't there? Um, yes. Dysfunctional to functional yes. beliefs. So beliefs that, that throughout the book, there are these graphics that appear that are about reframing assumptions. Yeah. Did you find those useful? Sometimes. It depends on the assumptions, but, but broadly, yes. And the, the whole idea of reframing, I think, is, is useful. That's clearly a design school concept, you know, that in order to design some object better or design some new object so that it works, you need to think creatively about what this object really represents. You know, we could, oh, we could have a mobile phone that doesn't have a keyboard at all because we could put a touchscreen on it. Or maybe we don't even need the touchscreen because maybe we can get voice recognition. That, that, sort, of, that sort of reimagining what, what, of One of the authors uh, was a product designer for yeah. Apple. Yes, and, and one of them designed the Star Wars minifigs um, back in the <laughs> 1970s, which is just magic. So, so yeah, they, I mean, they're proper designers. But the idea of, of reframing in a career context or in just thinking about your life might be... You, uh, they have an example in the book of of a, of a young man who watches uh, Jacques Cousteau documentaries and imagines he's going to go off and the sea is an amazing place. So he's going to become a, a marine biologist, and so he goes off to university and studies biology. But actually, most of the biology he studies is nothing to do with the sea, <laughs> and he's not going out on boats. And, and, and he's not he, Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> he's not Jacques Cousteau, um, but he and he's not very good at it, and so he's frustrated because he doesn't. I think he doesn't have the math skills, uh, but he's he's really determined to to become Jacques Cousteau. So he studied, and of course he's lost sight of what the original aim was, and he needed to step back and say, well, actually, what did I really love? Was it being on a boat? Was it that? Was it studying living creatures? Was it that? Because maybe they don't, I don't need to be on a boat to study living creatures, or maybe it was something else. And they, so they talk about stepping back from that problem and then starting to explore different ways of approaching that problem. So maybe he should have you know, spent more time on a boat, or maybe he should ask, is there a, an actual specialist marine biology course I could go on to? Because there isn't one at this university, but maybe I could move universities. Just exploring these different ideas. I think it's very, very easy to get stuck where you are 
uh, both in the process of design and in the process of just thinking about your life, your your day-to-day habits. And the authors are very good at helping us break out of that. They have this device the, the D school. at Stanford, yeah. at, at, at the D School, uh, which is a sign. And uh, the students love this sign, and it's part of the course. Tell us about the sign. I'm trying to remember the sign. Is it the you, sign? Are you, are you are here. You are here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you sorry. can stand underneath the sign. Yeah. Yes. Is that where you... And, and this... Be present, actually. Yes. Yeah. So being present yeah. and trying to understand your like you said, the multiple choices, the Try, returning to this one place. Yeah, trying to understand where you are, trying to understand the constraints that you face and your goals and how to get from where you are to where you want to be and re-examining the assumptions about that. So one of the points they make, which I find very useful, is they talk about uh, gravity problems. And so a gravity problem is, well, you know, the, the thing is, you know, I've got this book and here it is, but look, every time I let go of it, it falls. And I would really like just somebody to, to design a book that just didn't fall. And you realise, well, no, no, we're talking about gravity. This is just a fundamental part of the world. And there's nothing you can do about it. And everything you do has to acknowledge this gravity. And so they said, well, there, there may also be gravity problems in, in your career. So we're all journalists. Gravity problem for any journalist is newspapers are under pressure. Uh, somebody who wants to be a poet or a novelist, the gravity problem for being a poet or a novelist is uh, novelists generally don't get paid, poets get paid even less. Nothing you do is going to change that. But you might still want to be a poet or a novelist. But you you can't be a poet or a novelist while denying the gravity of the situation. This is just one of these little design tools that every design student knows, but most of the rest of us don't think about. Uh, and particularly, you could imagine it to, to young graduates, it's a revelation, uh, particularly if they're idealistic. Uh, yes, but, uh, but I mean, poss- <laughs> possibly a revelation to those of us who are <laughs> a little, <laughs> to many little older us, too. Yeah. Isabel, which of the exercises did you find least useful? I haven't done the, the one you're supposed to do for three weeks. There's, um, it's hard to describe in audio but there are some gauges where you have to put how confident you are about something how coherent you are about your plan this oh this is the um i'm just looking at the book here so, so they look like dials they look don't like they, on a dials. dashboard yeah and um there are various dials throughout the book and sometimes i find it quite hard to gauge where i am on a dial at any given moment there's quite a lot of that it felt a little bit to me like those t- quizzes you used to have in teenage magazines but i think i may not have been giving it enough attention. I, think I can what see I probably... none of your dials are filled in there on this yeah. particular worksheet. Yeah, so I think I'm going to go back and do that again. I think what this book is probably, like any good piece of, you know, academic work, you know, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. And I, I feel it's given me enough to want to do more. And what, what I did think was good for young people, graduates particularly, at the end, it's talking about how to get a job. Yeah. And it's saying, you know, the people who are trying to employ you may not know what the skills are that are going to be needed in five years' time. So you have to try and be the person that can fill those skills. So it, it's turning that around from the, the normal thing one would do is, you know, look for a job, apply for it, apply for the criteria that are stated. And they're saying these may not be the right criteria. Offer something different. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the bit of the book that, for me, I found not particularly personally useful because yeah. it echoed What Colour Is Your Parachute? But I do think, I mean, What Colour Is Your Parachute is a very good book and there's no shame in echoing it. And I do think, as you do, Isabel, that uh, young people would benefit from mm. that. So ideas there, for example, that rather than just looking in the newspaper or looking online for a job spec and applying, you should be going and talking to people about their jobs and finding out about their jobs because that might help you really understand what these jobs involve because when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you have no idea what people actually do all day. 
doesn't matter how many Richard Scarry books you read about <laughs> what people do all day, you don't really know. So you go and talk to them. And, and of course, those conversations may, at some stage, you, you have a deeper understanding, they may lead to a job offer. But that's not the point. The point is to understand the, the career landscape around you. It's a very old idea from what colour is your parachute. I think it's still valid. And I think it's not at all obvious to most people applying for their first job that that's how the world really works. I'm going to ask you both the same question. Um, Isabel, I know you have teenage children. Would you lend or encourage a young person to read the book? I would. I'm not sure they would have the flow or the engagement to get (laughs) through it. Tim? I would, and although my oldest child is not yet 13, so a little bit young, I think, but I have already been using some elements from this book in talking about our next family holiday. So you know, a big family holiday booked for the summer and just talking about what we want to get done and the different things we might do and just reframing where well, you want you want to do this but actually we you know there, there aren't any winter ski slopes in the Alps in the summer so kind of that's a gravity problem um <laughs> so so I think you, it's it's useful for having conversations with with younger children and exploring different options and different possibilities and working collaboratively together I mean I'd, I wouldn't want to do it every day I think that would be a little bit too <laughs> too right on but I have I have done it a little bit and I found it very useful that's great Cool. Several family holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and Tim, you've got a book out. Oh, uh, <laughs> glad you mentioned that. <laughs> Wonderful business book. It's it's called um, Messy, How to Be Creative and Resilient in a Tidy-Minded World. So, I mean, that's the business book that people should really be reading to deal with turbulent times. But, um, yeah, modesty forbids me to mention it more than once. When you wrote that book, were you influenced by any of the great self-help books it's not, Do you have them in mind? It's not really a self-help book. I was more influenced by different ideas in social science and in, in the study of creativity. So I talked to Brian Eno, the great producer and composer. That gave me some really interesting ideas. Reading uh, books about algorithmic problem-solving gave me an appreciation of the role of randomness and reading great political science like James Scott's Seeing Like a State and Two Cheers for Anarchy. There's a lot out there. So there may be a few things in there that will help people, um, but I didn't really think of it as a self-help book. Join us again in two weeks' time when we will be talking to FT political commentator Miranda Green about her choice of book for Turbulent Times, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. That podcast is out on May the 29th. Until then, thank you to Tim Harford, to Isabel Berwick and to Yanina Conboy, our producer. And thank you for listening.